Hello, this is Pitchmasters, and I'm your host, Danny Fontaine, and in this episode, I speak to the incredible Neil Malarkey. Neil is an author, an improv comedy maestro, a pitch coach, and a star of the Austin Powers movies. We talk about how to use improv in a business sense, how to tell stories, we debunk the myth of yes and, we talk about casting the right team for a pitch, mirror neurons and, of course, Swedish-made penis enlargers. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast channel or go to pitchguy.co.uk for exclusive content. And if you like what you hear, please tell a friend. Neil Malarkey, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now, for those people who don't know you, could you start with a little bit of an introduction to your own background? Hello, my name is Neil Malarkey and that's my real name. People think it's a made up name because it sounds like a comedian's name. And indeed, when I started doing the alternative comedy circuit in the 80s, people had zany names. Bert Tyler Moore, for example who's a great writer, by the way. Uh, there was uh, the, a double act called The Entire Population of China, Mickey Zaney <laughs> and so forth. But Malarkey is my real name. It's an Irish name. My great-great-grandfather, whoever, how many greats, I'm not sure, left Ireland in the 1850s, but Malarkey can be traced back a long time before that. I did a show once called All That Malarkey to show that my name doesn't mean the same as that other word, Malarkey, meaning nonsense and humbug. It's just a coincidence. Or was it? With a Malarkey family full of nonsense, there's various could be uh, fate. Various stories on the internet, but my my brothers, one's an accountant, one's a chemical engineer. They the, did not go into comedy. It's not nominative <laughs> determinism. In fact, for the show, I this two uh, thousands uh, or so, I looked in the phone book. How many Malarkeys are there in London? Not many. So I said, if you are a Malarkey, bring your birth certificate, passport, whatever, and uh, you can get in for free, however, no matter how wow. it's spelt. And 25 people turned up in this small place in Camden, wow. um, all for free tickets, even women who changed their name because they got married. But So Malarkey is my name, but it hasn't defined who I am. It used to annoy me because I wanted to be a serious actor. And then I thought, actually, no, I don't. I want to do what I'm now doing, which is improv. I teach people. I perform improv. So it all started a while ago. I was in the school play in the sixth form. And I thought, this is fun. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. But then when I was in the school play, no, I want to be, I want to be a comedian. I want to do laughing things. And so I found out the Cambridge Footlights was a comedy group in Cambridge University. Uh, the Monty Python and others had come from there. So I went there, I studied economics and then social and political science. But I got to be president of the Footlights. And then I told my parents, Arg. <laughs> uh, with a serious family you know, intent, uh, there I am. I'm ending up not only doing sociology, but doing comedian, which is worse, I'm not sure. So we went to Australia, uh, toured the UK, got my equity card, and then we were doing a show at a small theatre, the Gate Theatre, which was in Notting Hill, uh, above the Prince Albert pub, and there was a man there selling tickets, a Canadian guy. He was sitting in a wheelchair, not because he's a wheelchair user, but because we'd used all the regular chairs on the on the set, <laughs> the stage, this tiny pub theatre. And he was called Mike Myers. Uh, now, we might know him. Danny, do you know who he is? I've heard of Mike Myers, yeah. <laughs> well, in those days, in 1985, he wasn't Shrek. Uh, right. He wasn't Austin Powers, but he'd 
already done Wayne, actually, in Toronto, where he's from. Come to England because he loved English comedy. He loved British humour, Monty Python, Peter Sellers, and so forth. And we got chatting, and, of course, he made me laugh. And he said, well, I I, I do improv. And I, oh, nobody's, what's that about? Didn't understand what that was. He explained to me Second City uh, in Chicago. Then they went to Toronto. This comedy group that actually also did improv. I didn't know anything about that. Hmm. It all started in the 1920s with a social worker using improv skills, these adult exercises she'd made herself to give them confidence, these inner city children, perhaps they were deprived children, perhaps they were not native speakers, but there was certainly some sense they didn't feel they could talk or speak up at class. And she created these exercises and her son by 1959 had created Second City Theatre Company. And I'd heard of them because of the Blues Brothers, so I investigated mm. Blues Brothers, Saturday Night Live, Second City. And that's when I met Mike. He'd come from the touring company, the Canadian touring company of Second City. Wow, how exciting. And he was amazed that anybody had heard of Second City in the UK because most of us hadn't. We did a double act. We formed the Comedy Store Players. I'm still in touch with him. And I'm in a couple of his Austin Powers films. So broadly speaking, I was a writer before we are in comedy. And then more and more improv took my interest the Comedy Store Players, we did Wednesdays and Sundays. Um, and sort of turn of the century, I was thinking, I, I don't know what I, I don't want to be a comedian for the rest of my life. No, I don't. I remember what I did at university. I was interested in people and how they interact and how they work together. And improv with this beautiful art form, which is all about being in the moment, embracing vulnerability, collaborating, enjoying the uncertainty, embracing diversity. Um, I, th I started teaching that to people in business and basically that's what I've done ever since. Is that too long, Danny? You can snip that out, I'm sure. That was perfect. That was great. So you're still in touch with Mike. How's that going? <laughs> well, we are in touch. He, uh, uh, he loves Britain. His right. parents are from Liverpool. He loves Britain. He lived here for a while. Um, and then went back to Toronto, then Chicago, then New York uh, but he's always wanted more connection. Uh, so he's always sort of, <laughs> it's funny. How, do you have friends who send you pictures of houses? I might live here one day. I don't know if you ever have that, but <laughs> that's what Mike does every now and again, saying, this looks like a nice place. And I say, yeah, uh, he's got three children. And so now, you know, uprooting them might be difficult. But in 2021, um, they uh, he did a, a Netflix series called The Pentaverate. And he got me a tiny part in that, which was great. So he rang in February, said, do you want to do this? Oh, all right, that sounds fun. I just, are there any lines? Well, no, I just had to turn up and raise an eyebrow and wear a moustache <laughs> and a rather nice suit and hat, which I did. So we're in touch. I go to New York every now and again for some work gigs and we have dinner. And so uh, he's always sort of got an idea with his... I wrote a thing for my Substack the other day about the music that I liked in the 1980s when I lived in Birmingham, my gap year. And he said, oh, that's that we could make that the start of a TV series. So, so you know, we, we send each other little um, notes and silly things. Uh, he'll often send me something where some fan has made some crazy Austin Powers type things. <laughs> uh, and also Mike loves to paint pictures of um, the Colonel from uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. So he'll often, and he's just an amazing painter. You wouldn't have realized that, but just the most intricate details of of things like that, where he's in the, um, the colonel as, uh, you know, Chairman Mao or something like that, <laughs> superimposing different images. So, yes, we're in touch. And, uh, in fact, he's um, he's promised uh, 
to give me a, a lovely little cover quote for my book, which is coming out in June called In the Moment. Very good. And we'll get on to In the Moment soon. And uh, also, don't worry, we're not going to talk about Mike Myers, the whole podcast. But to remind, I'd like to play a little game. Could you give us one of your famous lines from, from the Austin Powers movie? <laughs> we'll see if people can guess what character you are. Uh, yes, I can, because uh, people love this scene. So let me see if I can remember my <laughs> I love this scene. Um, uh, and I might even do his lines as well. Let's see. Uh, so um, things like... Uh, um, Swedish made penis enlarger. No, no, he says, this sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. Uh, to, uh, to uh, what's her name? Liz Hurley, Elizabeth Hurley. Um, and then I produce a credit card receipt for the Swedish made penis enlarger. So basically, he was cryogenically frozen in the 60s and now he's come back and I'm giving back his his uh, Swedish made penis enlarger, uh, his Burt Bacharach uh, LP, his tie dyed socks and Cuban heel boots. <laughs> Uh, he said, no, 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 nothing to do with me. So I produce a credit card signed by Austin Powers. And then, as I say, he uh, he says, no, no, this sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. And then I produce a book called Swedish Made Penis Enlarged and Me, This Sort of Thing Is My Bag, Baby. <laughs> so it was one of those things where he wanted a supercilious Englishman. And between you and me, Danny, I hope you won't tell anyone, but when you're making a movie, uh, especially a movie with a new character, Austin Powers, untried untested they have to persuade yeah. the studio and for the international rights they have to sort of say well we've got some famous people and famous people are graded on one one to five <laughs> and i think <laughs> there was uh, they've, they've got people like tom arnold and rob lowe who kind of would you know they'd be pretty high on the scale and my part could have been given to somebody else who was quite famous a british person mm. but mike managed to get enough famous people to do other roles that I, I, me being zero, I could get in and do it. It was just one afternoon, very quick, because as I say, fairly low budget, nobody knew Austin Powers at the time. Uh, so they had to keep it pretty tight. I, I just basically went in for one afternoon. Mike put me up in his house and uh, uh, it was one of those things where people will say, I saw I know you. And then they remember the scene, which is from a long yeah. time ago. But yeah. um, uh, it, it's people's fav favorite scenes in many respects. But all I did was try and keep a straight face, really. Which must be difficult at times, right? But I, mean, I guess you face that all the time in, in, in improv. <laughs> you do. And in fact, in improv, it's okay to smile, to laugh. In fact, that's great. If you did it uh, continuously throughout the evening, that might be annoying. Uh, although Andy <laughs> Smart, one of the comedy store players, is very good at giggling uh, a lot. Um, but you try and keep a straight face. That, you know, like Buster Keaton, him keeping a straight face makes the absurdity around him all the funnier. But with movies, actually, it's quite easy to keep a straight face because you're doing it many times over. <laughs> so any funny has gone quickly. And that's where uh, Mike and others are geniuses because they can keep it funny. Even when you've done multiple takes, you've done the wide shot, the close, etc. Even the reactions he would step in for when off camera, do his lines. So that sort of thing uh, takes real professionalism to keep the energy up when this funny thing seems so unfunny because you've heard it 50 times. <laughs> So, so let's get into improv and, and maybe you could help listeners make the leap who are unsure how the heck improv can ever be used in business. And if we were on QI now, the buzzer would go off because I'm going to say this, isn't improv all about comedy? <laughs> well, there you go, Danny. Thank you. Good question. And of course, that's why I always mentioned this started not with comedians, not with performers, but with a social worker trying to help children disadvantaged children with their communication skills. So all we're doing is going back to that. 
Uh, actually, of course, in the interim, a whole body of work and ethos has grown up about uh, they working with what the other person says leads to better stories. Mm. Um, there was a group called the committee who they would try and create drama through conflict. Uh, but they realized that yes, and was a better way of creating scenes. Yes, there would be interest. There would be turns in the story. But if I just deny your reality, the scene doesn't work so well. And of course, the joy comes when I have to adapt to you and you have to adapt to me. In fact, our motto is follow the follower. We try and make the other person look good. So mm. there's lots of improv that isn't funny. Of course, I perform at the comedy store. Uh, there's lots of funny improv. There's more serious, dramatic improv around the world. Many, many different types of improv where they do a whole story one evening. There's ostentatious here in the UK who who do a sort of Jane Austen thing. There's an improvised Harry Potter, improvised Shakespeare, improvised sort of uh, science fiction thing. We do what's called short form little vignettes. But the basic thing, and this was my journey in 1999, I thought the idea of listening and accepting the other person's input was really helpful in business. Little did I know how applicable it could be. I just thought if we listen better, we'll have better conversations. Right. And then, of course, I found there was a whole body of leadership theory uh, and practice based on the fact that we don't know what the other person's thinking. We can't predict the future. We have to adapt. We have to be using what's in front of us rather than bemoaning the lack of what isn't there. Um, and so I came across uh, various thinkers, like there's a guy called Ronald Heifetz at Harvard who talks about adaptive leadership. There's a guy called Keith Grint who talks about wicked problems that have to have multiple partial solutions, all of which tune into the improv thing, which is you have to work with what's in front of you and uh, embrace difference. There are multiple applications of it. One is let's just have some fun, team build, have a laugh. And then oh, listening, that's interesting, working with difference, working with ambiguity. A leader has to deal with uncertainty. They can never quite know everything, but how do they adapt to the role of leader where it's not just about knowing everything. Sometimes it's about being able to ask questions. In fact, stepping back and letting the team ask questions. Sometimes, on the, on the other hand, it's dealing with the fact that the world is uncertain. VUCA, have you heard of VUCA, Danny? No, I haven't heard oh, of VUCA. What's VUCA. The world is volatile. The world is uncertain. The world is complex, ambiguous, volatile. The idea being that so many models of life and business and organizations are, here we are, that's where we need to end up, and it's a straight line. And it isn't. Right. It's, just, it's a bunch of tiny improvised scenes, conversations, moments, thoughts that may lead to where you are. And in fact, in my book, I mentioned somebody called Amy Whittaker, who was an artist with an MBA. And she talks about point B, that in the journey you travel and where you're heading changes while you're going there. And you begin to create the point B. And we all know that. We all know that part of life is kind of knowing what you want to do. Then reality steps in. What you might want to aim for begins to change. You're adapting. You're noticing what's going on. Decisions are not made one off and then you just go for it. You have to adapt. And in many walks of life, there is this continual adaptation. On the other hand, if you had no goal, you might feel lost. So that's what I tell people about improv. It's it's the mixture of using what's there, not just, hey, well, let's just do whatever. Because, <laughs> because uh, for example, when you come to the comedy store, Danny, 
comedystoreplayers.com. Come and see it on a Sunday. You'll see there's quite a lot set in place. We start at 7.30. We finish at 9.30. We know the games we're going to play. We know the people who are on. The comedy store is organized insurance, security, drinks, food, ticketing. So quite a lot of structure, quite a lot of preparation so that we can be in the moment in our uh, sketches and scenes. We react, we ask the audience for suggestions and make it up there and then. So there's plenty of applicability simply as an interpersonal skill. How do we have better conversations? Hey, you know what? Why not listen to what the other person said? Right. Or that attitude of, oh, I cannot know everything. The world will change. How can I be looking for opportunities in the uncertainty? How can I keep my team focused and inspired and confident and in fact, helping them spot opportunities. And they tell me as a leader what we could do next. That holding the structure versus non-structure is a continual challenge, I suppose, to anybody in any kind of leadership position or with a leadership mindset. Now, I was fortunate enough to attend one of your classes when I was in a previous company. And I got to see the Comedy Store players that evening as well. And it was the most I've cried at a comedy show <laughs> in my life. I, I remember having a stitch and barely being able to breathe. It's For me, it's it, it's just a different atmosphere to a regular kind of stand-up show. It's not just jokes. It's the unexpected and the energy and the atmosphere that all of that brings with it, which is fantastic. But let's get practical for a second. Let's get tangible. So some of the exercises that you walked myself and the team through have stuck with me for years and years and years. One of them being yes and, which you've mentioned previously. And I've, I've just finished your book, Seven Steps to Improve Your People Skills. And in that book, you quite rightly mention the misconception or, or the misuse of this. And I want to clear that up now because I work in IT consulting and I have done for a long time. And I often hear people just trading yes and for yes but, and sometimes in a way that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So, so let's try and clear this kind of slight mythological surrounding around yes and. Yes, it's almost become sort of a, a thing to worship. And I will mention the Applied Improv Network. So in 2003, I went to Toronto and there's lots of people, in fact, thousands now, but in, in that there were loads of people who came who are using improv implying to business, to the even the penal system, the hospitals, the police, all sorts, certainly teaching. And there was one group called On Your Feet. Uh, Gary Hirsch, who's a cartoonist, but also uses improv now, he's set up On Your Feet with another guy uh, called Rob Poynton, who's written a book about improv, in fact, two books. But they had a session called Getting Out of the Temple of Yes. <laughs> now, of course, for the improvisers, this, this was exciting because what people don't understand is simply saying yes isn't it. Right. In fact, yes and, are just, that's just two words. The ethos of yes and is I hear what you say and I use that to move forward. And I do play an exercise called yes and. We do that, but it's like a drill. It's like playing your scales on your piano. It's not the music yet. It's getting your fingers and your muscles and your musical abilities attuned. Uh, but we never say the words yes and on stage, and you wouldn't expect it in real life. Um, it's quite clear, though, that when somebody says yes, but we're going, oh, right, they haven't really accepted my offer. 
On the other hand, I worked with a management consultancy and uh, this guy, he'd heard about yes and. And the ethos behind that is, uh, I accept what you're saying. I'm working with your reality. Robin Dreek, as you know, one of my heroes who's been on your podcast, he talks about listen to validate rather than to judge. He talks about listen to understand the other person's goals and objectives. So that's what yes is. Mm. I accept what you said. The and is I'm going to put in my contribution now. And I might even say why I disagree with you. However, I need to validate where you are. I need to, in, in improv, I accept your reality. Uh, if somebody's uh, opened a door, you don't just go through the door <laughs> without right. opening it first or having shut it. On the other hand, if you do, again, the other improviser could even yes and that saying, oh, you're a ghost. Mm. So even a yes and of what might appear to be a block is possible. Um, so people say, but I don't want to say yes to what a client says. You don't have to. You can accept what they're saying as where they are feeling and thinking and perceiving. And so I actually have, uh, instead of yes and, I say talk about the idea of listening with intent, accepting an offer, which may not mean the same as agreeing, and then you give or send an offer back based on what you heard. So yes and, uh, as I said about this management consultant, he said, oh, I know this thing. Uh, you always say yes and when you mean yes but, as if, right. as if it was some clever thing saying yes and we can't afford that. Yes <laughs> and that's a bad idea. That's yes. the kind of thing I hear every day. I know, yes and I don't like you. And of course, you can, <laughs> you can be a complete blocker with yes and. It's right, just two right. words. And and I'm I'm glad you say that, Danny, because of course I can say no but, and that's that's still accepting the offer. No, but how about this? In fact, there's no opposite of yes and other than if you're really playing yes and, other than leaving the room right. and killing the other person. Because yeah. um, uh, uh, there's always something that we can work with, but there there is a danger that oh I'm I'm in the I'm, I'm putting on the mantle of yes and. And therefore, I can not listen. I can get my own way. Uh, of course, I still play it as a game because uh, people realize, oh, I, I find it quite hard because I mm. want to go, yes, and I've got this idea. So it's quite as a, a journey for people to go, oh, what I say should be using what you've given me. Mm. And I say sometimes you can actually be doubling your brain capacity if you're kind of using their perspective and yours, you've got a whole, the capacity of the brain. There's two brains right. working at this. Now, of course, that doesn't accord with everyone's experience because people just say yes and, or they say building on that or with respect, and then mm. turns out the words are nothing. So that's why I always go back to the idea of an offer. And again, this is from the guys that are on your feet. An offer is something somebody gives you you can do something with. So it's a word, it's even a gesture. And then, oh, I'll do that and I'll, I'll take on board what they've said. If So the classic one I have is uh, if somebody says, good morning, doctor, to me, then I'm a doctor and it's the morning. <laughs> uh, now, of course, the interesting thing is, is just why is there a doctor here? Who am I? Am I a patient, a nurse? Am I another doctor? Am I a more senior doctor? These are all the offers that are latent, that are possible to yes and down the line. And finally, I'll go back to uh, Tina Fey. Do you know Tina Fey from Saturday Night Live, then from 30 Rock? Brilliant person. The first female head writer on Saturday Night Live. Now, comedy 
much less so now, but certainly when she was kind of coming up, was very male. So to be the head writer on this fairly male alpha environment was quite something. But so her book is called Bossy Pants, sort of ironic take on what, mm. you know, successful women might be described as um, or put down as. And she's got two pages on yes and. Yes, why wouldn't you accept their offer? Why wouldn't you take on board their contribution? But then the and means why wouldn't you then give something of yourself? Mm. Uh, and I've even got a little chart sometimes, which is sometimes you're more yes, sometimes you're more and. <laughs> so yes, right. yes is, mm -hmm, yeah, taking on board, coaching, yeah. Sometimes and is when you're giving more, you're contributing more. Uh, and then sometimes the, the equally 50-50 yes and, if you like. So that's the thing. And I do go out of my way in my new book as well to sort of say, watch out. It's too right. glib to say, just say yes and to everything. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's what it's not what you say. It's what in the yes, the end. It's what you say after that. You know, if we're thinking about a business pitch, I, I can understand that. You know, should conversation arrive and the client uh, arise and the client makes a comment, you want to take that on board and build on it, and and using the yes and concept. What about the other way though? If a client is listening to us, is there a certain way of speaking to them to ensure we are offering? them something in a kind of business pitch scenario do you think well i think i teach a lot of people pitching groups and then sometimes i've been embedded with organizations who are heading for a big pitch and we're always going to get the mix right and it's changing now from my experience it used to be a long presentation a few questions now shorter presentation right. lots of questions and of course a lot of people say to me i much prefer the questions because i don't want to rehearse and I say, well, it can't all be questions. You've, uh, you know, just chat. <laughs> You've got to lay it your stall a bit. Now you may, and again on uh, virtual things, you may send some things in advance. You may send some some slides. But the worst pitch is where there's a little tiny thumbnail or disembodied voice where you're just talking through the slides, and they can read mm -hmm. the slides themselves. Found this wonderful quote from Woodrow Wilson, the only president of the United States who has a PhD in political science. And he said, the mistake people make is they think that government is answerable to Newton rather than to Darwin. Uh, so government is full of people. And it's so Newton, Danny, I don't know, let's just look at you. Did you study maths and physics A-levels? No, sir. I did art from the age 16 and was glad to be rid of the rest. <laughs> on, I, I have some simple understanding of it. I know, but, but, please go but on. I yeah. dare I say, you did, when you think about art, there's a bit of maths going on. Do you think? There is. Yeah, there, you know, so you kind of, you, you understand the golden ratio and stuff. Nevertheless, yes. Newton, he's got three laws of motion. So something stays where it is or goes at constant speed unless a force acts in it. So he's got three laws of motions, which help us understand and make machines. So in his world, things are predictable. Push something in a vacuum and it goes constantly until another force acts on it. So these are machines. And he said, actually, a government isn't a machine. Any, I say, any human organization is not a machine. We sometimes refer to it as a machine. There are some processes within it that are machine-like and data and, you know, whatever AI now um, and inputting stuff is a bit machine-like, but then you come to people, people aren't consistent, they're illogical, but they have leaps of imagination that are so far artificial intelligence couldn't have, or lateral thinking, one might call it. So in life, and certainly in a pitch, you've got to have the idea that sometimes you've got to be with Darwin, evolving, adapting, mm. changing the pitch 
uh, in the moment or, or addressing a whole point you may not have thought about. But you've got to start somewhere. So with your pitch, I say rehearse. So let's rehearse. So there's going to be five minutes or 15 minutes where we know what we're going to say. We've got some, we've got a slide or no slides. You know, I always say to people, imagine electricity goes down. You've got to do it by candlelight. No slides, right. just tell me. And this is based on a real story. One of my clients, they had their three hours ready, their pitch, a whole team, lots of slides. Friday afternoon, three o'clock, they're ready to go. Then fire alarm goes. Everyone's on the street, on the pavement, the sidewalk. And the client says, actually, we could all go home now. So just tell me in five minutes. <laughs> and if you can't. Some people's worst nightmare. It's my absolute joy. And also, if yeah. only if you can do it in five minutes on the pavement, you know you've won it. Other people say, you know, could you write it on a cocktail napkin? Or could you have one slide that you drew in a moment on a cocktail napkin? And if you can't, you probably don't have a pitch. If you can't explain it simply to a child or to a, a non-expert, you don't ha and, and you don't have a picture. George Bernard Shaw, quoting Mark Twain, said, uh, "Sorry, this letter is so long. I didn't have time to write a short one." And I'm sure, Danny, you've seen some presentations and pitches where they didn't have time to write the short one. They think the more we put in, the more it'll work. <laughs> so it's what, the reason I have a job. Uh, well, exactly. So you kind of, you have to, and it takes work. It takes work to yeah, get it down it, to five It's minutes. much harder. It's really yeah. hard. Just putting everything on a slide is easy peasy. Any fool. In fact, chat GPT can do that for you. Um, so I say, so some things you want to rehearse. So you kind of, you've got your strap line, you've got, some stories, you've got some case studies, you might even have a brilliant metaphor. Uh, and you've got a strong beginning and a strong close that kind of says, lets up your, sets up your stall. And then you go to Q&A where you do want to be in Darwin moment. Mm. You do want to be adapting. You, And again, lots of my clients tell me, we had a whole thing prepared about cost very quickly, listening to them like Robin Dreek would uh, suggest to understand their goals and objectives, the client said, well, cost is not the issue, but we are worried about this. Now, if they'd gone on forever about cost and price, used all their hour to talk about that, the client would be going, yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's not time to talk about the thing that really matters. So the more yeah. you can work with what the client gives you, but it doesn't mean you don't have something to begin with. Um, and again, think about what do you send in advance? Do you send a few slides? Do you have a phone call with somebody on their side? Uh, do you want to present every slide in the pitch or do you think maybe just one slide or no slides or in real life, bring a prop? Why not? Wouldn't that be fun? Well, I want to talk about that shortly, actually. We will get to props. Yeah, well, I love it. And then maybe send a whole bunch of slides later to back things up. But so you've got to be both Newtonian, machine rehearsed, ready, especially when it's a group pitch. Uh, I'm sure... None of your listeners and viewers have ever had a moment where there's a group pitch where somebody says, finishes and said, well, I finished now. Who else? Who's on next? Uh, do you want the clicker? And so, oh, yeah, it's me now. Yeah. Well, actually, he just said what I was going to say. Or oh, he hasn't left me much time. Yeah. Ah! No. Yeah. And that's where the king of preparation must be your <clears throat> guardian here. Newton, get it ready. Know your timing. It's going to, I give to you. I hand it to you. It's going to be seven minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. And then we know we've got a full. Um, period for our questions our, our, and so forth to really address the client's worries, needs, desires. And then when five minutes before the end, whoever your MC or host, she kind of does a, a closing thing, which may reiterate some of your points, but brilliantly, could they bring in something that's been said by the client 
reincorporate, we call it. Mm. That's something they've said that kind of packages it up nicely. And then you get out there a few minutes early. Isn't it great if you could do that rather than the client saying, well, thanks so much. We've got other people to see. Would you just go now um, because you've overrun? So that's that's my thing. Yes, prepare. Uh, yes, be in the moment, which is a really hard dynamic. So let's rewind a little bit then, because you say that you coach teams through a pitch, which is just a very exciting thing for me to hear. What do you do first? Let's 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 walk through the pitch itself. Uh, let's say I've started my new company, Pitch Masters Incorporated. I got a big pitch coming up to the board of some other company. I say, Neil, I'm calling you up because I have got no clue what to do. I've got a 20,000-page document of, of information. Um, help. Great. My first question is, uh, Pitchmasters, when is, when is the gig? How long have well, we got? let's think about real-life situation. We've got three weeks. Okay. And the pitch is one and a half hours in total. Fab. So if it was tomorrow, I would be quite different. I'd be very gentle and kind and, and friendly. <laughs> the sooner <laughs> it's coming, the nicer I am. Right. So if it's just happening tomorrow, I'd say pause, breathe, smile. And I, especially on Teams and Zoom, smile. Smile means you open up your face, people warm to you, and your breathing apparatus is working. Um, so my first thing would be, let's have a look at the, what was it? 20,000 slides. Did you say Danny? Uh, I've got a 20,000 page document. Pages. Okay. Well, that's fine. So somebody, uh, have a quick look at that or I'll have a quick look at it. Um, and just tell me in five minutes. Okay. And they, oh, I want to include everything. Uh, who's going to be giving the pitch? Is it just you? Is it you five, whatever? Who wants yeah, there's five there's of us. Five we us well, we're not sure because there's 20 of us on the team actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd say who wants to do it? Mm. I don't want any unwilling people. In fact, is there somebody who loves doing this? On the other hand, is there somebody who's never done it before? But if we talk to them, we this is what I just I just go around the room. What is it you do? How do you feel about this pitch? Um, tell me a metaphor. So pitch masters, are they the Rolls Royce of pitching? Or or are they uh, the Ryanair, the budget airline? You want to know where you sit because Rolls Royce is great, but it's very expensive. Do you have any techniques to help people come up with creative ideas like that? Yeah, this is a metaphor. It's always great. If you were a shop, uh, a supermarket chain, if you're a hotel, a car, uh, a tech brand, whatever, and, of course, get people thinking, well, we're, are we Audi, kind of various ranges, or are we Maserati, or are we uh, – actually, no, we're not even a car because mm. we don't, we we're walking, we're getting the train or whatever. Uh, we're cycling. We're a, a shared cycle route. So immediately you get people opening up. Um, and I will ask things like what keeps you awake at night? What gets you excited? So um, with this group, I would say, who have we got? What is it you do? Okay. How is that going to help? Um, who's the client? Should we call them? It's 20. Uh, who, what are they called? Uh, They're called Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so what? I say, why would Coca-Cola want you? And I'd say things like, you know, there's pitch kings and queens down the road. Why are you right. better than them? Because I'm sure you could come up with saying, you know, we have uh, 20 employees. What a turnover. We are task-oriented. Yeah, all that LinkedIn nonsense. And I say, first of all, what can you say about yourself that nobody could say about themselves? Uh, 
Or I'll also say, who's eating your lunch? Because actually, pitch masters, maybe you've been around a bit, or you know, your head person's. We all know he is great or she's great, but actually, uh, you know, somebody else is coming along and, and stealing their market for some. So, you know, what is it we can borrow from them? So, uh, either borrow from them or reassure our client that actually we do know what we're doing. So, everything positive and negative, kind of in the same sentence, almost to think about. And I also we talk about it a bit, and then I begin. You know, I'm, I'm in terms of time scale. I might come back and say, you know, everyone's just has to do five minutes in four days' time. And quite often, I, I, they might say, well, we've got to go away and check some facts and numbers. I say, fine, let's do it before we're ready. I try and get people to rehearse. We call it in in theatre putting on its feet. So rehearse before you're ready. Just do it. Just do it. And then people, oh, I haven't got the slides, and I haven't got. I don't care. Just tell me. And of course, what happens is that their natural editorial kicks in. If I've only got five minutes, I don't include all the other guff. And although it's not perfect, I've probably got the basis of something pretty good there just because I stood up and stand up. I get people to stand up and say it out loud and not read, uh, hopefully not slides or not looking at slides, but just maybe one slide. Because often I find with any pitch or presentation, there's a deck of 100 or 30, whatever. There's about yeah. two thirds of the way through. There's one slide. That's just everything. It's kind of, right. it's, it's a graph. It's a picture. It's, it's, it's um, uh, a metaphor. And if we just had that, that would be it. <laughs> Sometimes that's the whole case and it's hidden amongst all the stuff. And there's always an intro slide. Good morning. You know, I'm Danny Fontaine from Pitchmasters. Uh, do we need that? I don't know. Uh, how much do we need of the, uh, the stuff that I experience has gone to the graphic design department of the big company that the graphic designed and what they've done, they've got the, all the, you know, the Pantone, the correct colors. And the interesting thing is quite a small thing in the corner of the slide. Right. <laughs> um, because, you know, the corporate branding means that it has to be so, so, and it has to be this certain green, ARP green we paid a million pounds for um, <laughs> that nobody else can have. Uh, but actually, what's the real green that makes us different, makes us stand out? So get people to rehearse before they're ready. And you think, actually, well, I've got it's 60, 80% of the way there. All I need to fill in is a, uh, is a number there, a case study there. Actually, I have, need to have a better opening. And openings are a big thing with me, which is... Yeah, let's talk about openings. Hello, everybody. We're so glad you're here. We won't take too much time. Here's the first slide. Wow, what a great opening that is. <laughs> Why not start with Pitchmasters? Why on earth would you go for Pitchmasters? Yeah. What are we? Who are we? Who do we think we are? And already I'm excited because yeah. you've planted a seed. There's an offer there because it, the offer is, I'm going to tell you why we're worth it. Uh, also, I've got the confidence to say, we can walk away from this. Uh, I can say things like, there's a whole, you know, pitch kings, they're fantastic. Pitch queens, they know what they're doing. That's fine. Why would you want to go to Pizza Express when you go to Pizza Hut? Or why would yeah. you want to go to Nando's when KFC's doing what you need right now? Uh, or vice versa. So what is it that makes us special? And that requires work. Um, and I always, when people have done their five minutes, what have you said that nobody else can say? Or mm. in what you've presented to me, pitch kings can do the same. Pitch queens can actually say it better. They've got a nice yellow on their font um, or something. So what's making you stand out? In fact, why wouldn't I want to have you? I mean, there are certain reasons why there might be a pitch masters mm. that are only 
They're fairly new. They've got Danny Fontaine and Charles. We've heard he's a bit of a dodgy character from Colchester. <laughs> or, but also we quite like that. So, so um, another one that Mike Myers shared me with is what you can't fix, you feature. Mm. i.e. if there's some reason why they wouldn't have you then don't pretend it doesn't happen you might say well that's exactly why you want us so it could be we're the new kids on the block we're exciting or we've been around a long time we're reassuringly expensive you know all of these things are true so work with truth first of all uh and uh as i as the three weeks goes on i get people might go away they might come up with a slide um we might lose somebody um, somebody who's like, if only you could bring in uh, Dave, let's call them Dave. Uh, Dave's just brilliant. He's, he's brilliant at data and stuff, but he's a bit shy and nerdy. And I'm thinking perfect casting. Because right. uh, in the five people, you want to have different personality types. You want dif- diversity of cognitive thinking as well as any other physical That's diversity. interesting, actually, because often people think, right, who's really good at speaking? And then you have five people who are quite similar personality-wise, yeah. extroverted. So get get the extroverts in. Uh, maybe one of them could be the MC. But, but this is casting in theatre. You want mm. – I even say uh, let's – each of the characters sort of is the keeper of something. So uh, she's the keeper of, I don't know, project – of leadership, of keeping on track. Dave is the keeper of data. If you have Dave, you'll know anything and everything. You just, you know, you 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 know he can handle all that stuff. He's a bit shy and nerdy. You don't want Bill Clinton doing that. You don't want somebody <laughs> extrovert and cool doing that. And the things I sometimes even say, you know, dressed for the part sometimes. Yeah. Or even if you don't have somebody who does that, say, well, she's going to be marketing. Or uh, he knows all about the regional issues involved in this global project. Um, and even if you aren't, then, you know, make sure you know where you can access that information. So, if a question, so you're almost coming up with archetype, character archetypes. A little bit of that, then, yes. And then and casting also, them. What's, I like that. What's the thing that's going to be worrying? Even look at the and, – and I've worked with accountancy firms pitching for audit. So an audit committee will have uh, some sort of chair character who's old and sort of – political uh, the um fa- financial cfo who, who's worrying about you know will i look good in this so and there's others who might be looking well do they really chime with our business outcomes so you kind of think about the personality types on their team perhaps mm. you might want to match that or you might want to play against it but think about if you've got five people you've got five opportunities to address people's emotional drivers um mm. another classic one i heard was uh, one of my clients, they um, they found out later that part of the judging process was the committee or the person giving the gig spoke to the receptionist and said, "Tell me how oh, the teams, like how were the teams in the waiting room? Yeah, were they a team or were they just hello? I'm Phil. Uh, yeah, sorry, I just got to take this. Were they disparate individuals uh, or were they a team? And Another client said to me there was a there was a pitch somewhere and it wasn't near a railway station or a tube station or whatever. So they kind of they got a minibus. That's easier. And of course, it was like a school trip. They're on the minibus. Yeah. La, 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 la. And so when they arrive, they're kind of happy and jolly. And again, a lot of the modeling you might do in a pitch on the way to the pitch tells you how it will be to work with you. Mm. So you want in a pitch people to trust and like each other. So a tricky question comes up and everyone's going, 
not me, don't ask me, don't ask me. And you want them to be able to say, oh, that's a tricky one. I'll have a go. But I, you know what? I bet Dave will be able to answer this. Yeah. So A, that sets you up as I'll take the responsibility because that's what's going to happen. If things go wrong Friday night in transatlantic phone calls, you want to be able to have somebody who says, yeah, I'll stay up and sort it out. Uh, also modeling that um, I trust Dave to do this, but I'll have a go. Giving Dave a few minutes to think about it as well. So you want to think about the casting. You want to think, what's the team? Because quite often uh, your client won't know why they took you or didn't. Mm. They'll say, oh, because they've all got experience in the tech sector. Or they understand uh, automotive, automotive practice or whatever. And in fact, the reality is, I just, they smelt good. Or <laughs> they mm. were last or they were first. You know, there's again data in terms of, of that, which is deeply unfair. So I'll say things, think about the casting. Don't. Don't underestimate the theatre of this um, and even things the way you throw to each other. All right, this is Dave now. I've worked with Dave. Now, you know, Dave's, you know, unfortunately he's a Tottenham Hotspur fan, but he knows this. <laughs> Just things like that is I've been yeah. with Dave before and we struggled and we've been through ups and downs and I know that he will relish the challenge of your, of your work and he wants to get involved now. Yeah, that inter-team chemistry. And I have been involved on multiple occasions uh, with teams who meet each other, their own teammates, for the first time the day of the pitch. And and they underrate how incredibly important and damaging yeah. that can well, be. Well, the, the first thing I ask, when, if it's got three weeks, I say, when is the gig? Okay, it's 11 o'clock on Tuesday the 12th of March, whatever. Okay, I say, who's going to be there? And there's, well, I'm not sure. And, uh, well, I can, I'll be there for that, but I can't do any rehearsals. Okay, mm. goodbye. Mm. If, if you can't be there for the rehearsals, if you're not sure you're going to be there for the gig, you're not in the team. That's fine. We may end up with two people or we may end up with somebody who's never done it before. But if they're committed to the rehearsal process, that's fine. Yeah. And, and of course, it'll look great if you've got somebody junior and a bit shy, as long as they're not completely overawed by the situation. But again, you can bring that diversity. And people mm. had meant another one uh, from uh, an advertising agency, which is, how can you help us, they asked me, is we go to a meeting, a pitch, and the creative director's there, very experienced, great presenter. There's four other people who say nothing at all. <laughs> and the client's going, well, hang on, that creative director's far too expensive. We'll never see them again. It's the four right. people who are saying nothing that we're going to work with. And there they are. They're cowed by the whole prospect of working uh, with us or being in the front line. We don't want them. So you've got to model the fact, who are the people actually going to do the work and can they speak up in a meeting? It's all very well saying, I'm a partner in the firm and I've been everywhere around the world. I've worked with all sorts of people. Uh, yeah, great. We'll never see you again. On the other hand, um, one of my clients in the financial services, the partner is your contact. Right. And that's a proud boast they have, which yeah. is you see me today and you'll see me whenever you need me. Yeah. Uh, every project has a partner involved and not just for when it goes wrong or to sign the deal and take the check at the end. Uh, so you're modeling again what the relationship will be like in the course of the real project. Okay, so we've got our cast and we've got our kind of raw ingredients of each part of their story from our not-quite-ready run-throughs, and we're almost thinking about an introduction as well. Tell me, how do we write 
a great story rather than just giving them information. Because stories, uh, and again, something I learned from you in a workshop many, many years ago was the power of personal stories. Yeah. So they'll do their bit and they might say, we have done X, we have done Y, and we can do X and we got Y and we got this lovely piece of kit software or hardware. And I'll say, can you give me a story uh, which exemplifies that? And don't just say, it, we had a problem, we solved it at the end. <laughs> it right. was, we wrestled with it. We weren't sure which one to do. Um, we had to borrow and beg and steal and try and sort of mold this thing into that thing that it could solve that. So, yes, yeah, stories, of course, because of mirror neurons. Mm-hmm. Have I told, yes, you might remember that. But mirror neurons were discovered in 1992 in Parma in Italy. They had some macaque monkeys. Uh, and when they ate their nuts, part of their brain lit up. They were electroded up, whatever. Um, and then the lab assistant came in a few weeks later. And as he reached to get his nuts, the monkeys saw this and the same part of their brain lit up. So what it's called mirror neurons. So your brain is actually feeling and sensing activity and emotion that you see or hear. So a story has that. So I'm, I'm, I'm running along thinking what's going to happen. So in that, your brain is, is slightly out of breath because somebody's saying they're running. And they're worried. So you get slightly worried. Danny, have you, have you ever cried in a movie? Yes. It's the same thing. You're not actually unhappy, but you're mirroring the emotion of the person. So it turns out that the sensory cortex and the motor cortex are activated. So when you tell a story, when you hear a story or see a story, part of your brain is actually experiencing what the character on screen is doing. So... Um, that's why stories work so much better. You can say we've got 114,000 employees. We've got 20 offices around the world. First of all, so what? Secondly, that bunch of pitch kings have got as many or more. Um, give me a story where I go, oh, I'm not sure what'll happen. Uh, will it go right? I'm a bit like that character, that company, that firm. So story has, has that element of uh, will they, won't they? How's it going to work out? Uh, why are they telling me this story? There must be some reason. I'm leaning in. I, mm. I, I want to know where it ends. And for those people who say, but I just can't tell an emotional story. And you might not have an answer for this, but is there any, is there almost a pro forma? Well, there are, there are some. There's there's one, Barbara Minto, mm. uh, a management consultant uh, who had one, which situation, complication, question, answer. What's the situation? Right. What's changing? What's the problem or the new person in our market or the disruption technology consumer behavior regulation? Uh, what, so what is the question? So what are we actually trying to do here? And this is a, these are really good things, especially with some, shall we say, professional services. Is, is the client may have come to you with, we want this. <laughs> and you've got to, what actually, what actually do you want? What's the thing that that's going to lead to? And actually, maybe that's not the way to it. So often in the advertising world, which I have worked in both as a performer and sometimes helping with creativity, the client says we want, or they used to, <laughs> they say we want a 40-second TV spot, uh, 10 o'clock on ITV, mainstream. And they say, well, why? And it turns out that's not the best way to get the outcome you desire. Right. Because uh, TV commercials are expensive. You fly to South Africa, you hang out with stars, you get the Hollywood movie director, costs millions of pounds. But are they ending up with Mr. and Mrs. Smith in Colchester buying your product? Mm. Not necessarily. Maybe it's just direct mail. Or nowadays, there's much more interesting ways of finding that person. Um, 
So first of all, what is it? So sometimes finding the brief. So that's her situation, complication, question, answer. So finding what the question is. And then, of course, pitch masters are the answer to your problem. There's other ones, three-act structures. Uh, where are we now? Uh, so the, the setup, boy meets girl. The complication or the second act, the conflict, boy's parents or boy and girl fall out. Then boy and girl get back together again. Three-act structure is quite a nice one. Generally, I would say is you don't have to have a lengthy story. It can be very simple. Gavin Esler, who was a host on Newsnight, a UK current affairs programme, wrote a book called Story. He interviewed kings, queens, monarchs, politicians. And he said story sometimes can be simply a metaphor or an analogy or a picture. So the story of Margaret Thatcher is, for example, was um, Grocer's daughter from Grantham. Wasn't that great? Basically, somehow that story emerged. So Grocer's daughter, not investment banker daughter, not Lord of the Manor daughter, daughter, not son, uh, from Grantham, not from London, not from Manchester, not so provincial. And so that was her thing. How do we run the country like a shop sort of thing? Um, another one, Nelson Mandela. A shirt can be a story, he said. So Nelson Mandela, every day when he was on trial, he wore his suit. Western mm. suit. And then the, on the day he was sentenced, he wore the traditional Corsa tribal costume. So it's just a shirt. Cut to years later, South Africa is hosting the World Cup. Apartheid had been a major part of rugby, whites only. Right. And then the, the new rainbow nation was coming together. So he turns up at the, the cup final wearing what? The rugby shirt, which had been such a potent symbol of apartheid. So him wearing it by simply donning the shirt, a story. So that's what I say to your people. Don't worry too much about I can't tell stories because a story can be as simple as there was this problem. We didn't know what to do. We did this. The simplest one is put a man up a tree, keep him there, bring him down. A lot of stories start with let's establish a truth we all accept. We all know we get frustrated when we can't find a parking place or something like that. Something we all know the context, and then actually we've now found a thing that means you can find it, and it's going to cost £100. Actually, we've made it cost a pound. What do you think? So sort of you set up a, a truth, we acknowledge a context. You might set up some sort of, well, what's the difficulty you overcome, and then what's the payoff sort of thing. And I'd, I'd rather people just tell me stories from their own experience rather than mm. try and find a formula, a Newtonian formula. And I also get people to think about, uh, make the client the hero. So we had this client, they were fed up with X. Uh, we suggested they do Y and now what, you know what, they've expanded into all sorts of territories. So make the client the hero. So, so, so it's sometimes it's tempting just to tell stories of what we've done. We are good. We've transformed this. We created that. And then at some point, you want to say, actually, gradually get it towards the client. So the person sitting the other side of the table, which, by the way, never sit the other side of a table, try and make it round. Um, so they're thinking, oh, that could be us. I'm the hero, the protagonist of this story. And then even bolder is to make the end user or the consumer the hero mm. who knows nothing of what's going underneath the bonnet. So at the moment, people have to go and do X, or before they had to go and do that, they had to fill in multiple forms, had to press button, they had to download this. And that was annoying. And quite often, you know, they would go away and not bother. We found a thing that if you just press da-da-da-da-da, not saying what you actually did, but just saying, so now they can just press the button saying yes, <laughs> and they're happy. So you make the, 
the end user, the hero. So again, it's all about capturing emotion and creating an image of somebody whose life wasn't perfect, something happened, and now things are better. That's the story. And so uh, get people who are not natural storytellers just to talk things through, because that's what I do. I often get the boss who's got to give a presentation or something, a beginning of a pitch, and, and the team has come up with some fantastic slides, 100 slides that tell everything. And they and it's like somebody at 12 having to read an essay, and they're going, huh, huh. And I said, that's fine. Okay, now tell me what gets you out of bed. What gets you, right. what gets you angry? What, what keeps you up at night? And they tell stories, and that's great. So not everything should be a story. Sometimes you want to bung in. You know, we saved them 50 million pounds. Because <laughs> that that's a story as well, actually, because that's different from we saved them five million pounds, or they, they spent fifty billion and have now got three hundred thousand million customers. Right. So let's say we've got some great statistics like that and information. We've got the cast right, like I mentioned. We've now got some great stories, at least one good story. What is your view? I don't know whether you've ever thought about this or not, but what is your view on in a business pitch creating something totally a moment that's totally unexpected to make your audience sit up, pay attention and perhaps remember this moment for years to come? I think it's valid. It has to be authentic and contextual. I, I, there is a famous one where British Rail were invited to their offices and made to wait. Somebody was smoking cigarettes. There was rubbish on the floor. The attendant didn't take in notice. The receptionist ignored them. And then in came the agency said, that's what it's like for your passengers. And of course, they got the gig. Now, of course, there was probably something else underneath all that theatre. Right. But there's nothing wrong with that. Now, that's quite high risk, quite a lot of investment of time and, you know, scenery um but something as grabbing as that is great and you can do it for no money by saying your customers love you or your customers hate you or pretty soon they won't even exist professional services firms or something where you kind of just a, a, a moment ah what's going on or yeah. that's an, a major provocation promise, a provocation exactly which you either then tell them how you can achieve it or why it's not going to happen or you you address their darkest fears so you can do it with words. You can do it with an image, just a slide, a picture of a squirrel or something. Uh, some of the best ones I've seen, presentations, have been just pictures. Because, of course, we what's squirrel got to do with it? Well, it turns out it's kind of relevant to uh, KPIs or something. Um, right. So what I would say, two things. What I was going to say, what I, if I have got time, I love to do this, which is we, we kind of everyone knows roughly what they're going to say. They've all been at the rehearsals. And I say, great, now today we're going to do this normal running order except everyone else is you're going to do somebody else's script. Mm. Isn't that great? And then of course you hear somebody else doing your bit and they either get it word perfect or they've truncated it to what really matters or they've got it completely wrong. And you think, Oh dear, they've heard me say it three, twelve, ten 10 times. And that's still what they think. Oh dear. I better, I better rejig. Or actually sometimes they said it so much better than me. I'll steal their approach. There's another big benefit to that as well, a practical one, which when I was a young consultant, I was in a pitch and my boss, who I had incredible faith and awe in, was doing his big opening bit and his mind went blank. It just happened. It never happened before that, you know, no one expected it from him. And the client were looking around the room and he looked at my colleague and he looked at me 
And I thought, I've got no idea what you were about to say, even though I've been in the rehearsals with you. And the guy sitting next to me got up and did his bit. And I thought, wow, from now on, I will always be ready to do anyone else's part. Anybody can try. Anybody can try. There can be a fire alarm. That, that somebody can come in with biscuits, completely kipper you, or they can get ill, or they're you know they're, they've broken their leg, or their child yeah. has got has got something, and and the big person or the not so big person can't come. So fill in. So it's it's a great way of kind of it help it helps you kind of get the flow if you've listened to other people. If you can step in, and it's quite fun as well because you can get okay, Danny, I want you to be Sheila now, and then you can you know <laughs> Danny can play a bit of Sheila, which is fun. Yeah. Or, or getting the so-called marketing person full of schmooze playing Dave and getting Dave out of his shell to play that other person. And it's great fun because it creates team spirit. It means you know the material. You've heard your material being slightly jigged about by somebody else, which makes you think, actually, maybe, oh, did I really say that? Or, no, that's a great way of doing it. Or I don't need to say all the stuff I'd prepared. Um, and anybody can step in at any point to, to help out if they're, if they're trying. But, so here's another story somebody told me, which is the CEO is going to give a speech at the big town hall for everybody. And then um, um, Rocky music, dun, 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 dun. You know, oh, everyone's excited. And the CEO comes in, in kind of a robe and boxing gloves and, and stuff and goes, now, welcome everyone to this year's <laughs> And does the speech he would have given anyway. So yeah. the big thing didn't lead anywhere. And he looked just stupid. So yeah. it has to be authentic to the client. It has to be authentic to the individual's who are playing it. So I would say uh, the the famous British Rail one was great because there was a lot of money at stake. Uh, you could get them to come to your venue, which nowadays we possibly can't because we're all on Zoom or Teams or Chime. Or... So you have to work. But nevertheless, just even things like having no slides is fun. Um, mm. Starting with a prop. Uh, you know, What has this got to do with the post office? Well, you're leaking profits or whatever. So sometimes yeah. I get people to almost describe it and use a prop. And then we work back as to why. And what it does is that we may not use the prop at all, but it kind of unwraps their loyalty, their complicity, their deification of the slide. Because too often people physically and emotionally go, here's the slide. Now, isn't that interesting? It's all there on the slide. And all I'm doing is a voiceover. And you are the presentation. The slide may back you up. It may illustrate the point, but it's not the thing. The thing is you. And I would bet it was a lovely improvised water bottle thing you just did there. <laughs> but I would bet if we pitched to the post office and did a tipping a water bottle, this is your profits leaking, that would be probably one of the most memorable key takeaways because it's real and tangible in front of them and it's a little bit different than just having a slide that says your profits are leaking yeah exactly exactly now you could still have the slide <laughs> as well um and i and i think obviously i can do this i'm not answerable to shareholders i can be silly mm. i can be crazy <laughs> but if i could just push you a little bit to think about is there a way that will have an emotional connection to your audience whose decision on whether you win or don't win the pitch is emotional. They'll tell you all sorts of rational reasons as to why you came second. I almost think of a couple of reasons why it's dangerous for them to go with you. So, so you know, we are, we're, not so, we're not so big. That's dangerous. So you almost go, there's, there's a bit of jeopardy there. Um, 
but also be gradually getting to think to the moment and, and how you say it may vary, but why they'd be mad to turn you down. What are they missing if they don't have you? They're missing these people who are energetic and creative, uh, but also collaborative. So sometimes a pitch may be, um, I think it's allowable to say we haven't fully worked it out. And another PR company I work with didn't do slides. They made little scrapbooks mm. and gave them to everybody saying, well, this is what we've got so far, but we haven't finished the book yet. We want to work with you. So a lot of advertising, for example, tends to be here is the finished product. We've done it with, you know, plasticine. We'll do it with real people. And it's kind of, it's not collaborative. It's not iterative. It's not adaptive. And I know that's a risk for some people because it looks like you haven't done your homework. But I think if, I just love that idea of a scrapbook because A, it's physical, it's tangible. I can look at it. Oh, it's fun. There's pictures. Oh, and there's a, wow, we can still have a contribution because a lot I find with, say, media, the client's role, at, once they've given you the gig, is to just kind of nitpick about, can we have the logo in the top left-hand corner? Mm. Or oh, it's not quite big enough. Or it's not the right Pantone. Or we said we'd never use the word chicken or something <laughs> rather than, What's the big picture here? What's the emotional reaction that we want from our end users uh, ultimately or the story we want them to tell? So Coca-Cola was the client here with Pitchmasters. You know, I think we need to be bold enough to say we might not get it. Yeah. But we'll have worked out who we are to find that that actually that that tiny cola brand in Devon are going to be exactly what we want. And, and the work we put in for Coca-Cola could be right for us or actually – We've realized we are ready for Coca-Cola. We've done all other stuff, and this could be exactly right. And also, between ourselves, if Coca-Cola didn't choose us, they'd be mad. What a mis what a shame. And you need to go in with that sort of belief, which is uh, we whatever we win or lose, we've done, we've shown who we really are. And that's a, that's a really hard challenge because we don't always know who we are. I've been in many pitches. I won't name any companies, but there's been more than one where we've gone, right, how are we going to win this? <laughs> Not sure. Well, then let's just do some slides and keep going anyway. <laughs> well, let's do what we did before and change yeah. uh, BP to Coca-Cola. Oh, this is my one of my worst things. And, and this is a good point to, to just mention quickly because it's not always bad thinking per se that, you know, a previously winning pitch can be saved as a different client's new winning pitch but actually, for me, that where that's where huge problems arise because you spend the entire three weeks or whatever figuring out how to change every detail, not just the logo, but all of the details to match the new client. Well, yeah. You could have just started with a new great story. Well, I think there's a few things there, and there's some work to be done if you get the gig. Why did we get it? Get some data. If you didn't get it, really try and ask the client, why didn't we? And they may not know. They may say because of X or Y, some external sort of rational thing. And you may, they may say just the chemistry was lacking or something like that. But data is useful, obviously, in those circumstances. Um, and the other one I would say is one of my clients said, what happens is quite often it's all a bit thrown together. So somebody thinks, well, if I'll be useful by just using what we did before and just changing the logos and changing the order and making it Germany as opposed to <laughs> Italy. <laughs> um, and the less time you have, the more it falls to the senior person to pick it up. So we don't have much time. It's okay because Dan has done it before. He'll be fine. And so we'll let him do it. 
And of course, again, that's a shame because it role models only one type of performance. Mm. Uh, it means that the juniors don't get chance. And as I said before, that thing whereby the client's judging, why is it all the senior person doing the talking when the juniors are going to be doing the work? And actually, they probably are closer to the target market we're talking about and have much better in- understanding of TikTok than this old codger who's still using a fountain pen. Uh, so, so, uh, it's very easy to say, oh, we haven't got much time. We'll let the boss do it and we'll do the slides we did before. So I always challenge people to say, do you really want the gig? You're going to spend a few weeks, three weeks or three days or even three hours preparing this pitch. Do you really want to go at it half cock? Wouldn't your client respect you if you said, we're just too busy to to give this the attention it needs? Not only that, but the client then goes, oh, but, but, but please... <laughs> And, <laughs> exactly. and all of a sudden you go from a, a, a third in the running to someone who really wants you to come and do it. Yeah, exactly. There are so many stories of we pitched one thing and got another. Uh, yeah. Or we said no, but they liked us and they came back with a much bigger gig a year later or something like that. And I think you really have to you have to look at your stats here. Do we want to be winning 50%? We want to be winning 30%? Do you want to be winning 90%? How, mi- how many times do you want to get out on the pitch and every time we play, we may kind of means we're not paying attention to our existing clients. Or maybe it's worth it. Just we will never get this one. We're far too small, too big, too something. But just in the in the practice, we might find who we are because we're emerging and changing all the time. We're not who we were two years ago. So so it's worth it as a as let's give some time to this pitch, even though. Yeah. Uh, we might not get it, but it's it's finding out who we are, really. So that's basically what the pitch is. It's the story of us. Who are we? And also, I also say things like the story of who we and client could be. So we want to have stories of the past, but also this is where the improv comes in. Co- sort of co-creating that story in the moment of, oh, this is what it'll look like in the future. Here's this where you are now. We've got all these case studies of stuff, but, you know, imagine come with us on this journey and that's the shiny uplands we'll go together. That's what it's going to be like. Your consumer will love you because she'll be here or you'll be here. So it's it's the story of the past, the story of how we got here sometimes, where you diagnose where they are, you understand, and then create the question to which you are the answer. And then you create a story that, that is a visualization of what the future could hold. And I've got to ask this because it's you. Do you recommend or, or what, what's your views on getting maybe not comedy, but certainly humor in a pitch, in a business setting? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but don't think we got a joke. We need a joke here. Or somebody said something once in the rehearsal that made one person laugh. Let's keep it every, keep it every time. Right. Uh, or we heard somebody's a Tottenham Hotspur fan. Let's do that joke about Arsenal. Um, right. I, so how do you do it then? Well, I think, because I'm an improviser, I think the best humour is in the moment where, where you acknowledge what's happening. So, for example, when your, your boss completely dried and the other person picked up, you could say, well, um, looks like... Um, I could help John out here or something. Or John later says, I don't know what happened, but um, thank you. Um, you know, I'll, here's a million pounds for helping me out. Or <laughs> Just, you, make light, you make light in the moment of the thing. Because uh, improv humor, for me, at its best, is about our shared fragility and our vulnerability. I made a right. mistake. It's okay. Oh, a thing happened. Oh, let's use that. 
rather than creating a joke. Now I'm saying it's, it's, uh, you know, don't, it's almost as bad as a guy dressing up as a boxer to put in a clunky joke. That's a joke joke. But I think a nice way is, and this is one of my other things and the neuroscience backs me up on this. It's great. If you've got a team of five, if you don't introduce yourself, so you say with me is Danny. I've worked with Danny many times. He does this. He's like that. Sometimes he doesn't, you know, buy around in the pub or something. Uh, the other, and then you introduce the next person. You're credentializing each other because we'll never say, and this isn't just British people, we'll never say, I am good. I've done lots of good things because we just don't. But if I'm saying uh, this person is highly accomplished and I like working with them and maybe a, a, a smile, that's fine. Um so that's when a bit of humor could come. And there was a book out 2021 by two Stanford people, one of whom is a professor, one of whom is an improviser, and they work together. It's called Humor Seriously. We say, let's get humor into everything, even just a, sm- a PS at the bottom. It doesn't have to be, ha, ha, big laugh, as long yeah. as they say it's appropriate. So a smile, a little, oh, yeah, they, they've mentioned a thing in the email that we kind of digressed about in our chat isn't that cute they've asked how the dog is or what happened to that thing that was in our zoom background or whatever so i would say humor yes definitely allow it i'm not saying get the alpha male to do joke jokes get everybody to smile to feel happy and that's where the rehearsal matters and the getting in the minibus physically or metaphorically we're a team together we like each other's company I'm not going to say, oh, you made a mistake there, you idiot. <laughs> that's not humor. That's bullying. But if somebody, if something goes slightly amiss or um, if you can use, especially something the client says as a little callback, do you know what a callback is? It's in, in Seinfeld or Kirby Enthusiasm, some seemingly irrelevant thing emerges and then it comes in again and it crops up again and it's the payoff or something. That's called a callback. I call it reincorporation. Mm. And that's a great way of having humor that's in the moment and authentic and not divisive. Just playing back a little thing that happened before, even if somebody says, you know, I'll have the pink biscuit, um, you could use that. This is, you know, the, this is the pink biscuit moment or something where it's a smile. It's not a huge laugh, but it, and that, that has to be sort of worked in through creating the feeling and the energy in the in the team before they go to the gig. Because one of the things you just mentioned there, and, and you mentioned it in your book, but you mentioned it so briefly in your book that I specifically wanted to ask you, and that is the topic of energy. And I don't think that is on the forefront of an IT consultant's mind when they're thinking about pitching a business proposal. And you mentioned different kinds of energy in the theatre as well. Yes. Well, thank you. And and I do talk about it in my new book as well, because to summarise my improv, I had had five. I knew that it was about listen, accept offers, give offers, and then reincorporate offers. And I had lager, but I needed an E. <laughs> I needed an E. And I thought energy. Because the energy we bring to a conversation is the energy we get out of it. Now, that energy isn't running about being crazy. Right. It's sometimes the energy of stillness, the energy of focus, the energy you bring to listening, which is not a passive, but a highly active skill when used properly. And we talk about it a lot in the theatre, the energy of the character, the energy of the moment. 
but I was a bit too scared. It was a bit lovey. So I did explore assumptions. So there it is. Explore the assumptions you have, uh, which is whatever you take for granted, questioning why that is, or understanding why somebody else assumes something about pitchmasters that you didn't even realize. That can be creative. That can be informative and it could create rapport. Or if it's a, a fake assumption, could be a way of unlocking meaning. Um, then another of my clients, who's a coach called Kate Tejera from X Fusion, she wrote a book about the art of possible. But she also she's a coach, an executive coach to a lot of CEOs, and she noticed the most successful CEOs manage their energy. They don't try and do everything, and so I know we're talking about pitch here, but. A pitch can be just somebody talking about it. And if I talk about it like this, then it sounds like I don't really care or I don't know what I'm talking about. Whereas all I'm doing is a bit nervous of the idea of presenting. So I will say things like lift your energy. That's hard to tell somebody. So I might say things like sit forward, look at everyone in the eye, use your hands, smile. Even now, I'm standing up, so I've got more energy. I'm being saucy. I'll have a lie down after this, Danny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I know that if I stand up, I've got energy. And only the other day, I was working with somebody, very bright person who works in cyber risk. And I, I'm, I was, I'm helping them. And the, the, the person who asked me to help them, they, they sort of seem a bit sort of under-energized. And I said, it's not that. It's probably because they're nervous. Yeah, it's kind of with senior people and it's about eyes and voice. And then it was great because this person said, yeah, I could do a bit more energy. And I said, look, actually, it's really hard to present. And if you're doing it properly, you'll be exhausted. And I often do, I do a, a thing called enrich your pitch, which is a day and I do a virtual half day. And I'm talking about story. I'm using metaphor, use improv. Think about your openings. Think about how many facts you have make them great facts not just bunches and bunches of facts creating image try and work with what the client gives you have a good ending and so forth uh, and i've got a, a sort of seven micro structures one of which is a rhetorical question so what would it be like to work with us so where would this leave you so you, it's a tiny story rather than saying we are good we have many people we will make things good uh <laughs> boring but if you kind of ask them a question to which you're the answer anyway so i did this half a day and i i'm about to go and get my glass of wine and i said let's just stay on anybody who wants to ask a question and this woman said you know when you said to me after this you're going to go and have a lie down i thought wow i never feel like that right my presentations are always like this and so i say things like especially on working from home you fill your day from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. or whatever. Every meeting is the same energy. And then you've got a big presentation. What have you got before and after? Oh, just meetings. No, beforehand, give yourself an hour, half an hour minimum, or even the whole morning just to get in the zone, have a bath, have a shave, go for a walk, have a coffee, have a lie in, look at your notes, practice, whatever. But don't just turn on the camera for the next meeting. And then afterwards, give full energy in the moment. Your All of your energy should be focused through the camera or to the people in the room. And so you need to build in a little, a warm down, I call it, like athletes, mm. which is don't have a meeting straight away. Have a treat lined up, a chocolate, a walk, a, 
uh, friend uh, coming to see you. Because otherwise, you're going to do it all at 50%, which is, I've come from a bunch of meetings, I've got more meetings now, I want to maintain my energy for everything. I know, give it 100% so that you are uh, really spent afterwards. Yeah. Uh, but that means engineering moments before and after such that you don't have to be required to do other stuff. So in my book, which you have read, uh, I call it Project Rainbow which is put in your diary an hour or something, which is you doing nothing, yeah. which is going for a walk, thinking, composing that proposal, but not having meeting, meeting, meeting. Uh, so energy is really important. And people don't realize how it, much energy is taken by a pitch. You're presenting, you're in stress. So I've got children now who are teenagers, but I used to take them to parties, kids' parties, and there was a clown or whatever, magician. And they would come home, be really tired, just because being with other people is tiring. Yeah. We don't know what's going on. What do I say? Do I do I sit there? Uh, what are they going to say to it? Should I speak up or just listen into this group or whatever? And that don't underestimate how tiring that is, even for so-called extroverts. Uh, certainly introverts, if they have uh, read the book called Quiet by Susan Cain, they will realize it's just tiring being with people. I say the, the other thing that's tiring is often all of the nerves and adrenaline that we're dealing with as well can be absolutely exhausting. And, and, I, and I guess that's a bit of a segue into the final topic of pitching, which I would like your opinion on. And I've spoken to lots of guests about this. And so I'm just always interested because I work with a lot of younger people who are just so incredibly fearful and nervous about getting up in front of anyone else and i was wondering if you had your what are your top tips top tips beforehand rehearse rehearse so you've got a visceral memory of saying those words in that order with those people get to the gig early if you can for the pitch go to the room if it's in their place get there early be the ones after lunch or the one first thing in the morning so you can spread out and just mark your territory feel comfortable in that room if you've rehearsed and you've got people with you, that's great. Especially if it's five. The other four, remember, when somebody else is on, you're still on. The audience is looking at you. Are you scribbling notes, looking out the window, eating chocolate? No, you should be looking at the person, giving them some nice eye contact, going, you're doing great. I love you. If anything happens, I'm here to pick you up. And afterwards, give good feedback. That was great. Three weeks later, say, well, that bit you didn't quite get right. But, right. but give them a chance to action uh, an, an improvement. Um, and frankly, young person, the more practice, the better. S young person, volunteer for every single presentation you can, even if it's just to get on the committee about what we do with the spoons in the canteen or something like that. Just get up on your feet. And this is um, something that I see in schools. Uh, great schools encourage you to stand up and say things to an audience. The more you do it, the less it feels like an alien thing. And I'll say to that young person, it's nerve wracking. That's why I practice. That's why I get to the event early. That's why I um, don't. I'm really unsocial before a show. And, uh, you know, people say, oh, come and do an after dinner. Have dinner with us before. I say, no, I'm horrible. Let me hide in my room, have room service. Afterwards, I will be such a friendly guy. Um, but why is presenting scary? Because it's unnatural. In fact, the only time in nature where I stand or sit with lots of eyes looking at me is when they're about to eat me. 
<laughs> so it's true. Exactly. Yeah. So these lions want to eat me. Actually, in reality, the audience wants you to win. They'd rather yeah. sit through a pleasant experience. So they're kind of, you've got a positive already. They're kind of invested in this being a worthwhile moment, um, generally. So uh, treat it as a non-natural thing. So things like stand up. Stand up because then you could be energized. You get more eye contact. If you feel weird, fine. It's a weird. It's a weird thing. Just standing up just works better. If you feel really, really bad about standing up, go and get a glass of water, and then turn round and oh, I'm standing up. <laughs> so you've got an excuse <laughs> to be standing up. That's what somebody gave me once as a nice tip. But uh, it is not to be underestimated. You think you're good at your job. You could talk about it to somebody in the cafe for hours. Suddenly, if it's called a presentation or a pitch pitch even more scary because you win or lose you're being judged yeah ultimately we all know why we're there my wife used to work in investment banking don't forget to ask for the trade at the end say we really want to do this don't just lay out your suitcase of watches or mops <laughs> metaphorically say actually after said and done we're kind of we, we're looking forward to doing this so ask for the trade too often we go, so that's the end of our presentation. Rather than saying, we're passionate. We want to do it. We're excited. Yeah. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. Fantastic. So very insightful and knowledgeable you are. Tell us, what are you doing next? What are your big projects that you're working on? What do you want to tell the listeners about? Well, I perform every week with the Comedy Store Players, which is in London between Leicester Square and Piccadilly Circus. Uh, it's improv. It's like whose line is it anyway, if you're uh, able to remember that. The audience gives suggestions and we act it out. It's just the most fun. I'm sorry you got a stitch, but people often say, I come away, my face is aching. I've laughed so much. You do laugh more because it's kind of more scary than a scripted show where you kind of know they've done it before and they'll do it again. We're kind of walking a tightrope, but that that is so much more. The tension is, is greater, but then the relief is greater when we actually manage to say some things that work. Um, so I do that. I love what I do. I've, I really enjoy coaching individuals, coaching teams, giving a keynote, running a workshop. So tomorrow I'm running a workshop, which I often do a whole day just called Enrich Your Pitch. Uh, we do some improv. We film them. We play back. We do storytelling. We do coming on. We do getting think of metaphors. Then they have to redo the thing they've prepared. And it's so lovely to see somebody at four o'clock being so much bolder than they were at 10 o'clock in the morning. So that's what I do. Workshops, keynotes. I love traveling. Um, it hasn't much happened lately, but uh, people say, well, uh, they must be different in that place. No, whatever the job is, whatever the country, we're all the same. We're all slightly scared of this, but ultimately we all want to tell our story. And we all have performance anxiety, but we all want to be validated. And also we all want to, we want to be both an individual and part of a team. That's what's the joy of improv is. I'm validated for who I am, but I also belong. And those, that dynamic can work. So that's what I love. So I've got this book coming out in June 23. It's called In the Moment. The book is called In the Moment, published by Kogan Page, uh, UK Arrest of Well, June 3rd, USA, Canada, June 28th. In the Moment. Now, I've, I've cheated a bit because in the moment it's improvisation, but also sometimes the moment can be a moment in your career, the mom a moment in your life where you look back and say, that's when I began to learn. And of course, I know, Danny, you haven't done physics, but there's also the moment of inertia. Moment is movement. That's where the Latin is. I'm mo there's momentum. And sometimes 
if you're not careful in your organization or your pitch, <laughs> the momentum is going that way. You're going really fast, but in the wrong direction. So sometimes step back, look where you really want to be. Do you really want to have that pitch? Is it the pitch just getting lots and lots of stuff or is it getting down to the bare minimum that says this is why we want the gig? So in the moment, it's called. Fantastic. And where can people find you online? Well, I'm neilmalarkey.com. On Twitter, I'm at neilmalarkey. Instagram, I'm at neilmalarkey. I'm on LinkedIn. There are some other Neil Malarkeys, but I'm the one in London, uh, which will say improv your biz. Fantastic. Thank you for your time. I have one final question, which I ask all of my guests, which is as simple as this. Any final words of wisdom for people who are interested in this stuff? If you're interested in this stuff, how to pitch, I think that you're interested in how do we communicate? There are books called Life's a Pitch. Uh, to Sell is Human is another one. A pitch is basically saying, this is who I am. This is who we are. We want to do something together. Think of it that way rather than as a, an exam where you, kept, you could get marked down. So it's fine to get turned down if you've presented who you really are. And that's, that's a bold thing. And the best thing, really, practice, practice, practice. Have a go at it. Everything could be a pitch. Chat to the person in the shop. Just look at their eyes. Enjoy human interaction. I love it. Neil, you're a wonderful man. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more.